And I'm not a really good American because I like to form my own opinions. Huh? What? There's tons of examples of corporate greed, inequality, and disregard for the environment that make people wonder if markets are evil, and they are. Maybe Mises is right about America being a land of opportunity, and maybe it deals at the point about the machinery of capitalism being oiled with the blood of the workers. Where it's like, hey, wake up, liberals. You can't always do, uh, sometimes you gotta, uh, you know, uh, but that's a, that's that's actual quote from Carmel. In recognizing a communist, physical appearance counts for nothing if he openly declares himself to be a communist. We take his word for it. Um, if I were to ever start a country with a communist government, wink, wink, wait 12 years. Men are seduced by communists, a woman so much so that they deem communism nice. Communists murdered mostly the Nazis. Bottom-up horizontal connection, sharing at all levels is key. Describing is anarchy. Are you an anarchist? You mean, am I a member? An anarchist group, yes. Anarchists have a group. I believe so, sure. What kind of garbage is that? Oops, my anarchy symbol. host dan platt live in the studio for this edition of the three left show your leftist news analysis strategy magazine reading hours i still don't have my opening script in front of me this show is for a post-capitalist present and future covering perspectives from socialism anarchism and ecology those are the three lefts searching for a the path forward or through policy practical or, or utopian uh, for a commons economy and a democratic society. I am once again your host, Dan Platt. Happy Juneteenth, or rather today is the day. Um, I have lots of smaller, uh, shorter stories about law enforcement, traffic, um, and then going into public transportation and driving in general. Um, the sources will be various. Usually I say, oh, this is a, we, I cover left-wing sources. They will be more various in this episode, you know, shorter, pithier articles from newspapers, Vice, uh, and other such things, as well as uh, the more radical for the more sensationalist take. And I'm clear about when I'm, you know, when I'm reading something sensationalist or not. And actually, since it is Juneteenth, maybe it's probably not the day to do this, but I wanted to bring up 
uh, a kind of trend when it comes to identitarian politics. So last, so the these uh, last episode was an ecology episode. This is an episode about traffic and law enforcement, policing issues, police reform. Uh, not so much the abolishment side, though it's kind of a step towards it, but it's otherwise reform. You know, you know, you can reform slavery, but unless you abolish it, you're not really solving the problem. Is one position. Otherwise, there. Um, when it comes to identitarian politics, like say black nationalism, or a you know black, you know these are black holidays versus having worker holidays or class-based holidays, identitarian politics versus economic class politics. You know you're making you know those identities are classes too, so it kind of gets confusing when you refer to both as being class-based. You know there's racial classes which exist and economic classes, and then they intersect, and that's intersectionalism. And there's a ongoing uh, argument on the left, or it gets very ugly, about whether to uh, focus on one or the other. Or if you do focus on one at a particular point and not the other in a particular context. But here's an example of how that plays out when it comes to in the effects it has on building solidarity. So my brother, who has a middle-class job uh, in a middle-class family, and is, you know, has a Jewish background like myself, but otherwise sympathies towards the poor and struggling. He's not completely divorced because even if you're in the quote-unquote middle class, you are still under the boot of the capitalist system, and you can be well aware of that. But it does not help in building movement and building a left that can do things for itself and for other people. When the African American Cultural Center puts up a mural and at the moment, I don't know what, how many figures we'll have when it's finished, but currently it has Malcolm X and Maya Angelou on it. Great. My brother, not so enthused, since he has a negative portrayal of Malcolm X from mainstream media, or in particular, certain quotes of his earlier in his career at 64, 1964, in which uh, the politics of the time, and certainly his individual politics as well as the politics of the kind of black nationalist, black separatist that, like, we assert ourselves in fighting segregation and white supremacy. We need to segregate our, you know, we, we segregate ourselves because we're already segregated. So we kind of need to be proud of ourselves and accept or kind of build up from that, from our situation. And he, he, was, he has comments about, like, Jewish landlords, Jewish business owners in New York City because he's a New York City guy. And the context is that after post-war, you had black neighborhoods where, um, because of redlining and other such things, you didn't get certain, you know, it wasn't profitable or it wasn't uh, financially incentivized to continue to own property or run businesses in these areas. But in the racial hierarchy, Jews were still below white though they were getting there, but they're higher than black because everyone's higher than black. That's the, that's the point of white supremacy. Or at least that's a, da, da, the, the type of it, the archetype. And so in these red or yellow districts, Jews either um, from wealth built up during the New Deal and war, World War II period through their own mobs and organized crime, or the GI Bill, a mixture of the two, like my, or me and my brother's family, uh, they were beneficiaries of the GI Bill. But returning veterans, black veterans, were not beneficiaries of the GI Bill. 
and that's systemic racism for you. Maybe it wasn't individual people who were being racist, but the system was still creating a disparity. A lot of people can't really get that because it seems to create conflict of, well, I have free will and I'm an individual. And if you say a structure affects my decision making, that's like uh, you're saying there's no free will and the collective is everything. And, you know, that's bad. All of that aside, I actually made the argument, at least in the beginning, but I, I, I'm going to. But he was um, he didn't get a good answer from this uh, African-American cultural center, you know. I also made the argument that it's like, look, this moral isn't for you, so stop being upset about it. And the, the the center was kind of similar in that, like, well, one of the murals artists is Jewish, so and he's okay with it, so why shouldn't you be? That's exactly wrong because it is lumping all Jews together or all um, black people together. This is the opposite of anti-racism. And it's, and it's not building solidarity because my brother was miffed at this uh, answer. And even when I was kind of talking about like, well, Malcolm X in 1964 is very different from Malcolm X when he was killed because he was actually softening on black nationalism as many, including Martin Luther King, were softening their positions on this stuff that like, oh, yes, it isn't just white versus black. Mm hmm. Um, because it was from the beginning of the 60s to the later in the 60s, oh, look at all of these white allies we have. Look at all the solidarity we can build over the anti-war movement and anti-imperialism and anti-capitalism. And those are the issues that link us all together instead of dividing us. So similarly, I'll always throw out Malcolm X's quote about, like, you can't fight white supremacy without fight, fighting capitalism. Because then it becomes class war, class conflict, or class organizing based on economic lines of income or manager, worker, you know, employee, manager, executive. Kind of hierarchy versus a what um, skin color you have and or what um, cultural background you have. Do you speak ironics or not? Still, after all that, happy Juneteenth. Now on to... Policing, but more aligned towards talking about the roads, traffic, and transportation issues, which I'll segue into later. But right now we're talking about policing, and so there will be a number of policing stories and policing reform. First, the most normie take, start there, work our way towards the more radical, as always. From Motherboard, Vice, uh, tech thing, we don't need cops to enforce traffic laws. As the headline, uh, written by an Aaron Golan last year in the heat of the, well, I'll call it the uprising. The law invented the concept of officer discretion so white drivers could get fewer speeding tickets. If we want to have fair and equitable policing, as if that could ever exist, but let's say for uh, the liberal, let's uh, take it on good faith, uh, that that could be possible. We'll have to get over our hatred for speed cameras. So this is an argument for speed cameras over officer discretion. But really, I'm going to focus on this um, talking about officer discretion in the first place. That it's not just officer discretion. There's judicial discretion. And the entire justice system, which is predicated on being fair and honest and balanced and looking at the facts of every case, is actually completely full of implicit and other types of biases. It is, in fact not a justice system 
because it's just the system of rules. If we just have rules, no, there's always discretion involved in enforcing the rules. So we might as well accept or, you know, embrace, embrace is the word I want, embrace that things are going to be unfair, but they can be democratic so that everyone has a say and a piece and a share of what is fair. But let's talk about, let's go through his argument just about police discretion and the answer of speed cameras, which I'll get into uh, in the local context. Uh, the protests after George Floyd's killing have sparked a national debate about how to reduce police power and hold officers responsible for their actions. These proposals have ranged from defunding and abolishing the police. I've made that in this program. These proposals have ranged uh, uh, to the case of presumed Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden, uh, now president, give police $300 million more million for community policing, which is exactly what is happening now. So if instead of defunding, which, you know, all the scaremongering was about, is actually funding them giving them more money. Regardless of which policy personally prefer, any effort to eliminate racism in American policing must figure out what to do about traffic enforcement, which seems to be the wrong question, though. But let's let's take that for granted, right? Because traffic is for granted and car uh, dependency is, and thus fossil fuel dependency is taken for granted. Uh, but even if it all went electric, which I've gone over how that un, uh, bad or unhelpful that is, uh, let's take all that for granted. We're still going to have a car-dependent society. According to the just, uh, Department for Justice, and by law, it is almost entirely up to the officer whether to let the person go with a warning, give them a ticket, ask to search their vehicle, stop and frisk, or escalate the situation even further. It is an interaction intentionally designed to let officers do virtually whatever he or she wants, reflecting the inherent biases of our legal system. Racist or classist ones whatever they are. Police pull over more than 20 million motorists every year, according to the Stanford Policing Project, which undertook a first-of-its-kind large-scale study into what happens during more than 100 million traffic stops. It found, quoting them, police require less suspicion to search black and Hispanic drivers than white ones. This double standard is evidence of discrimination. Throw that in the face of any right-winger who says, well, you can't prove the discrimination. It's right there in the numbers. Facts and logic. But traffic enforcement is not just the most common way police interact with people. It is also a foundational element to modern policing that encapsulates how things got so bad and why. It was bad at the very start. Historically, that's how police got a lot of their discretionary power as a matter of policy, says a University of Iowa law professor, Sarah Seal. And they offer of policing the open road, how cars transformed American freedom. Quoting her, because they need to enforce traffic laws. You need, you know, in order to enforce traffic laws, you need that discretion. Why? Let's go into it. Let's go into the history. The problem, CO told Motherboard, was to do with the history of the automobile in America itself. Before the car, basic tort law handled street conflict well enough. If your wagon ran into mine and caused damage to me or my property, and we couldn't settle it like reasonable adults, I'd sue you. This stopped being good enough once cars flooded roads causing all sorts of conflicts and crashes, not to mention death. Of course, there's always that, like, um, trope of the kid getting run over by carts, which actually occurred uh, a lot. At first, private associations like motor clubs tried to encourage safe practices. You know, safe self, self-regulation, as, as it's usually called. But such pleas fell on deaf ears. We needed laws, and cities passed traffic laws not too dissimilar from the ones we still have today. 
Although extreme cases like a law in San Francisco governed the angle at which motorists should make turns from one street into another. Police quickly had a problem. Of all these new laws, a flood of them, nearly every motorist was routinely breaking at least one of them. Enforcing the letter of the law meant ticketing or arresting so many people as to risk widespread anti-police sentiment. Hmm. So during the 30s, when motor vehicle use became more popular, more prevalent is the word, not just popular because, again, by this time, it's like, well, you have to get one because if you're still in a wagon or a horse, you're going to get killed. Nearly every motorist was well-off white person not used to being hassled by the police. That's a clear distinction right there. As a result, police adopted a new approach. So, see, see, they're all breaking the law, but, see, you can't enforce it because then that would, that would upset the, the, the Karens of the time. The well-off, you know, the, the donors to the politicos, the, uh, the funders of the city. The masters of the city, the, the city fathers. So as a result, police adopted a new approach. They often added courtesy as a part of their official slogan, one the New York City Police Department still has today. But the flip side of courtesy, CO said, is discretion, which le- became legally codified around the same time. It is up to the officer to judge whether or not they should write a ticket in any given traffic stop. And once black people started to own cars in greater numbers after the Second World War, discretion thus becomes discrimination. Quoting her again, By then, discretion for white people still meant being lenient, CO said, but for black people, it meant harsh, abusive treatment. Today, we can still see how elemental discretion is so is to traffic enforcement because we have an alternative, one many Americans loathe to bore precisely because it has, it has no discretion, the automated enforcement camera. Speed and red light cameras are proven, functional technology that make roads safer by slowing drivers down. I uh, can dispute this. I'll go into it once I finish the article. They're widely used in other countries um, and can also... So so just so you know, I'm taking umbrage with a uh, conclusion here about, like, they make... Well, see, they... they um, maybe I'll go into it now. They reduce T-bone crashes, but they increase rear-end crashes. Because people are, like, now braking really hard to not go through a red light. So there was more rear-end crashes. But slightly less T-bone, you know, where you actually hit somebody because you're going through a red light. And that's just for the red light cameras, not so much the speeding cameras, which we don't have in Albany. But we were talking about red light ones in Albany, which were installed. And um, they're not spectacular success. I mean, of course, you know, the ticketing has occurred. And it does raise the uh, city some money. But as the, as the mayor made the argument, as she was writing in $2 million from red light cameras into the budget, we were like, you're saying it's not about the money, but you're writing it in as like a sure thing, like $2 million. And guess what? $2 million is what the company selling us the red light cameras says they're going to earn. Why are you taking their word for it? Dumb. So, and of course, it raised, uh, what was it, a third of that? It raised like a third of a million uh, or half, no, no, it raised half a million. I think that was just the first year. I don't know if what it raises now. I don't believe it's raised more. Otherwise, there would probably be some more reporting. The city would probably, the mayor would say, look how much better it's doing. It is filling the budget hole. (laughs) Obviously not. So she was right about it not being about the money, (laughs) but uh, at the same time. Yeah, she was being overly optimistic. 
about uh, what it would raise. So they're widely used in other countries and can also enforce parking restrictions like not blocking bus or bike lanes. They're incredibly effective enforcers of the law because apparently that's what the writer here cares about. Enforcing the law, you know, the laws are fine. It's not the law's problem, it's the enforcement that causes all of the angry black people or the black deaths, the ending of black lives. They never need coffee breaks. They don't let their friends or coworkers off. And then you get some technocratic, like, automation is great, actually. And certainly don't discriminate based on color or a driver's skin. Because these, yeah, of course, because the law doesn't discriminate in itself, right? Uh, because these automated systems are looking at vehicles, not people's faces, they avoid the implicit bias quandaries that, say, facial recognition systems have. Although, as Dave Cook from the Union of Concerned Scientists tweeted, the equitability of traffic cam cameras is dependent upon who is determining where to place them. Another thing I can mention as a side is that there is discrimination as far as who has the ability to pay traffic tickets. All right, a middle class or upper middle class white person can pay a traffic, I mean, this will be mad about it, but they can pay a traffic ticket fine. But when it comes to a working class millennial or person of color, regardless of um, their skin color, but working class millennial resumer, um, I kind of quote the meme where a traffic ticket is a financial burden that we cannot recover from. It's a joke that's like, um, our parents at our age could buy a house for $100,000 or $50,000. And, uh, and then the lower panel is, must go to dentist. I will not recover from this financial burden. Because it's true. Most Americans, half Americans, cannot handle a $500 emergency. And a traffic ticket is, is half of that. Depending on the city, of course. Maybe it's all of it. Yeah, so back to the placement of the cameras being kind of uh, maybe a concern. Because of that, many drivers loathe them, especially ones used to be being the beneficiaries of discretion. You know, white people. <laughs> Only 13 states allow speed cameras, and eight have explicitly banned them, including Texas. The rest have no explicit rule about automated enforcement. The most common and highfalutin objections to... word highfalutin... Objections to automated enforcement have to do with the Fifth Amendment rights to face their accuser, which they argue cannot be done when their accuser is a machine. But this CO told Mueller board is a tell of what they're really after, discretion. The way I translated that argument is, or interpreted, I need to be able to argue my way out of the ticket, says CO. That argument is made by people who believe as long as they can get a hold of a human officer with discretion, they can get out of a ticket. Tellingly, there is a clear demographic trend among people making this argument. They're white. In all her research on the subject, CEO said she has never come across a minority group arguing traffic cameras are bad. Police unions also lobby against automation because they say the traffic stop has become the key crime-fighting tool in arresting people with guns and drugs, although there are obvious staffing implications as well. When I was part of the a little bit of activism in opposing red light cameras in Albany. It was, yes, it was majority white, um, or it was a completely white, but it was more speaking to the character of the libertarian values of all, all those involved, um, not so much the whiteness, because it was never from a place of, I need to be able to get out of a ticket. It was more of the, this kind of automation takes things out of the hands of humans and dem democratic uh, processes. Of course, when it comes to traffic enforcement, or traffic enforcement, nothing about it is really democratic. But let's just say in first 
going from first principles. We want things more democratic, and for that, we they need to, humans need to be involved. So yeah, and, and and when we and when that argument was made, I didn't use it. You know the the Fifth Amendment clause. I didn't use it because arguing from the Constitution is always weak. As far as like, look, we should be arguing from practicality. Does this actually make the roads safer? Does it stop people from speeding? Does it cause drivers to slow down? I say nay, because what it, what I see on the roads is that people will accelerate block to block to block, regardless of what the color of the lights are. You know, even if there's a red light ahead of them, like they, you could see it in a clear uh, point of view, people are still gun 40 miles per hour down a city block and then break really hard before the light. I don't know why. They're just used to accelerating really hard. I'll accelerate to 20 and just roll my way down the block. But, it's like, but that's where like maybe the speeding camera comes in, where then everyone who is gunning at 40 miles per hour gets that ticket instead of just focusing on the intersections. But uh, the main... Um, but again, this was an effort from a company selling red light cameras to the city for their own profits. I mean, they were business. Businesses can have positive ends. They would make every argument, and we would make arguments that, like, look, yeah, they lower T-bone crashes, but then they raise rear-end crashes. Uh, I don't know if this really happened in Albany. It was, it was, it was negligible. So, which is why we haven't pushed back against them. It's become normal, not normalized. And then it kind of goes to, like, yeah, it didn't actually harm us that much. So we're not, we were pushing back against its implementation, but then once it's implemented, we kind of were just, like, quiet about it. Or uh, in the case of one of the activists involved, um, join the police review board so that he's still watchdogging, and it's like, okay, I'm going to look at the red light camera data to make sure it's not misused. In this way, traffic cameras are emblematic of a wider issue with white privilege. It is hard to get the beneficiaries of that privilege to give it up. As the traffic cops of the early 20th century found, to enforce traffic laws equally bumps up against the fact that when behind the wheel, everyone actually breaks the law. That isn't to say traffic cameras can do everything. Drunk driving laws, for example, are not a simple matter like speeding tickets, where a camera or radar gun can tell if someone's breaking the law before pulling a person over. However, officers need to use discretion not only when deciding whether to pull a vehicle over for suspicion of drunk driving, but also in how to handle potentially aggravated confrontation, including getting a person out of their vehicle to administer a breathalyzer test, which, by the way, are often unreliable. For her part, CEO, who, for the record, supports separating criminal law enforcement from traffic laws and automating as much of it as possible, sees a solution here as part of the larger conversation about defunding the police and one that harkens back to the original concept of policing in America. So she's a bit more woke than just being a technocrat. It's like, we should just automate it. And then that, that fixes policing. No, this is bigger issues than that. Historically, police officers come from a concept called the police power, which does not refer to police officers, CEO said. And the way it's defined as a sovereign inherent power to govern for people's health, safety, and welfare. When you look at what police officers in the 19th century did, they responded to public safety and welfare. For example, finding lost children, taking care of drunk people sleeping on the street. It was very much a caretaking function of the government. Although, if you're black or minority, that looked very differently.
But the, the, these are the these are the memories that people have about like the good police. So instead of having one department that responds to all kinds of public welfare issues like homelessness, domestic violence, speeding cars, gunshots, robberies, specialized agencies could then respond according to their expertise and have the tools on hand necessary for their, that specialization. DUI patrols, for example, could be trained in de-escalation tactics, detecting the intoxicated and substance abuse treatment uh, referrals. As any, as with any other drastic reform, these are not perfect solutions, and they come with trade-offs, including privacy concerns from all the enforcement cameras. Mm, yeah, uh, that was the kind of main concern, yeah. But destroying systemic racism requires sacrifices. You may not be able to argue your way out of a speeding ticket, but it also can't order you to step out of the car and shoot you dead. Oh, oh, unless, of course, the traffic cameras have, like, uh, automated guns or something. <laughs> But that takes for granted that, like, enforcing traffic laws is important and that car dependency is, is, is forever. It's realism. This one is from Strong Towns. I've read them before. They're kind of a mix between being a neoliberal but a little more progressive, but also a little, like, woke liberal, too. Why, and this one is titled, uh, and this one's published two years ago, so before the George Floyd hiccup. So, you know, they're, like, they're ahead. I, like, definitely, like, they think about things more because they're not just thinking about it when there's rioting. <laughs> they were thinking about it before things got really bad, um, but there was still Black Lives Matter and stuff. Why routine traffic stops don't make us safer. So this, this goes beyond just, like, automating it as the solution, or at least. Why? We have a public safety. Oh, that's also because Strong Towns looks at things like in a new urbanist. Let's focus on the infrastructure kind of way, which is very structuralist and, and cool of them. Um, that's why I kind of like them sometimes. We have a public safety epidemic in America, and it starts on our ro roadways. In 2017, over 40 thousand people were killed in motor vehicle crashes in the u.s more people were killed in traffic every year than by firearms and a huge proportion of those crashes involve vehicles that are speeding 26 about a quarter of them says the national highway traffic safety admin pick just about any news report or radio or tv interview on this topic at random and you'll likely hear two solutions discussed education and enforcement this was also mentioned like the red light camera discussion of like, look, we're not just automating here. We're also going to do education and enforcement. Uh, this is the enforcement side. We also got to do the education side. And I roll my eyes very hard. Um, as then I make a public comment about how we should have more traffic circles, roundabouts, um, which are very expensive as far as like building them out is concerned. But then I also kind of took that into account and looked at, like, this German town that basically got rid of all traffic enforcement, including signs and lights. And what that means is that if you're going to drive and not kill someone every time you go out, then you definitely need to slow down and be careful and drive safe. Unfortunately, the most common way we enforce speed and other moving violations through routine investigatory traffic stops by the police ends up leaving road users, law enforcement officers, and communities all less safe, while potentially distracting us from the things we really ought to be doing if we want to bring that 40,000 stat down dramatically. 
you know, one traffic fatality is a tragedy. 40,000 is a statistic. In July 2016, Strong, Strong Town's founder and president, Chuck Marone, published a call for communities to end routine traffic stops. Marone took this stance in the wake of the death of Philandro Castile, may rest in peace, who was shot and killed by an officer in Chuck's home state of Minnesota, July 6, 2016, after being pulled over for a broken taillight. Uh, subsequent reporting, and because of, like defund the police and other pushing for harder reforms wasn't yet popular or things didn't get so bad, right? Uh, you had communities doing, uh, what was it, um, clinics to ensure that everyone in the black neighborhood didn't have a broken taillight because this is the kind of thing police took pull you over for and then they either search your car, they harass you, it's, it's life or death. This is not an uncommon experience for young black men, which Casile was, and is indicative of the way traffic stops are used, are often used, in low-income, high-crime communities as a sort of surveillance tool that allows police to detect other illegal activity. Key to the usefulness of traffic stops as an all-purpose crime-fighting tool, a pretext to pull over anyone you want to check out, is the fact that nearly everyone breaks traffic laws routinely, as mentioned in the past article. You know, it's not really about enforcing traffic law. It's about controlling a population or surveillance, mass surveillance. Or it's, it's very selective surveillance, and that's the problem. Maybe it's like it either argue that, like, look, in order not to be discriminatory, the surveillance has to be completely universal, watching everybody all the time. But interestingly, the APD have kind of moved, uh, at least recently, because they are basically watching certain corners to, because if we had a rash of gun violence, a breakout, that they are just kind of parked and watching certain intersections instead of relying on cameras and other things, because that way they're actually on the scene. So in July 2016 episode of Strong Town's podcast, the sixth in our Greatest Hit series, Marone devises into the, delves into the reasons he called routine traffic stops a poor way to address both speeding and criminal behavior. So let's just take the whole, like, you know, laws are wrong, or, like, you know, war on drugs is wrong. Let's just say the crime is, like, still something you want to fight. So first... Traffic stops are indiscriminate. It's not uncommon to find roads all over America where a vast majority of drivers are exceeding the speed limit. In fact, we design our roads to all but ensure this. The engineering principle of forgiving design, where it's the mistakes of the driver that are forgiven, not so much the pedestrian, means that a road with a posted speed limit of 30 might have a straight, even wide lanes that make it psychologically comfortable to go as fast as 60. On such a road, given the constant focus it takes to keep a lower speed limit, it's no surprise that many drivers don't. This is why uh, road diets are important, and it's kind of not so much mentioned before, but the infrastructure changes of literally just repainting the lines. So for context, just so you're actually like aware of this factoid, the widest a lane can be, uh, or at least usually is, um, like say on a highway, is 12 feet wide. And you also need to think like a car is average 9 feet wide. But... As, of course, as time has gone on, if you look at certain trucks and SUVs, they're more than nine feet wide. Thus, a lane can't be, usually the minimum of a lane is nine feet. But with certain vehicles, they actually can't be nine feet. They must be 10, 11, 12 feet wide to accommodate all these larger vehicles. But larger vehicles allow for, or larger lanes 
allow for higher speeds because you know, there's less distance between cars and all that stuff. And of course, there's still the dopes that uh, that will still go really fast even when things are really tight. The maniacs. So traffic stops are also dangerous for the police. Blue lives matter, quote unquote. Traffic stops are the single most dangerous activity that many police officers themselves engage in, which is why they're so skittish. Uh, more officers are killed and injured doing these stops than anything else. So if you care about police lives, you also want to stop traffic stops. They're oppressive to heavily policed communities. When traffic stops are used as a surveillance and crime detection mechanism instead of for the express purpose of catching the most reckless drivers, it's no surprise that enforcement targets some communities and some demographics more than others. Murren thinks that there have to be better ways to control crime rather than through this practice. Quoting him, If you're telling me the only way that we can begin to control crime in high-crime areas is to use traffic laws as a random pretext to get up in people's business, I'm sad. That was certainly not the intention. Now, of course, I'm more than sad. I'm pissed off. I think it should make you angry. That was certainly not the intention of the Founding Fathers of the Fourth Amendment, that's not the type of civil society that any of us aspire to live in. Yeah, many accept it as necessary. So here's a better answer to chronic speeding. Fix the design of the roads. The way we deal with the mismatch between posted speed limits and design speed when we detect it is backwards. In the podcast, Marin describes it with the 85th percentile rule. The speed limit, according to engineering manuals, should be set at a speed that the 85th percentile driver is going. So if significantly more than 15% of drivers on the road are speeding, do we redesign the road? No, we raise the posted speed limit. Or more often, we leave the status quo alone, a situation where most drivers speed and speeding enforcement catches people more or less at random instead of targeting the truly deviant, reckless drivers. If I'm the major of, mayor of a city, I want to know where the people are speeding. Give me a map. And then I want to deploy my engineers, my planners, my urban designers to those speeding spots. And I want them redesigned so people drive slower. And we're going to keep alliterating back and forth until a vast majority, 85% of the people are driving at a speed that is safe. And now my police force can pull over speeders because only because they're the actual, actual deviants. If you're, of course, going to follow the mindset of you know, deviants and normies and normals, okay. Uh, there you have a humane and effective way to deal with the real problem, deadly speeds on far too many of our streets. You know, lower it to 25 instead of, but, but see, instead of lowering it, it's like, okay, how about we do a road diet so that it's actually more comfortable psychologically or otherwise to go the speed limit of 30 uh, or 25. And with that, now the average speed is 25. Because they actually mentioned that, um, oh, like th during the road diet prep, it was pointed out that uh, you know, this is a concern, like, oh, we're going to be going so much slower. It's like, well, you're actually looking at the data, you're only going to go two miles per hour slower. So, with the last 10 minutes of the first hour, I will now cover half of the next kind of topic is taking out the road stuff, but keeping in the policing stuff, um, particularly disarming the police. Okay, let's let's say we're not going to defund the police, okay? But let's say the problem is police shoot people, right? Criminals, uh, you know, others, people, uh, shoot people, you know, gangs, 
uh, or not in gangs, the lone wolves, whatever, people going postal, they shoot people. It's bad. It's bad. Uh, do you go after the guns? Do you go after a culture of uh, toxic masculinity that encourages this, uh, this uh, stuff? A uh, culture of violence that goes from our empire on down. You can just target the guns and control control of guns. So let, let's take it from that direction, you know. And so instead of defunding the police, we disarm the police because obviously the police, most of their duties don't involve actually deploying their guns. Um, in fact, they might be more encouraged to deescalate if they can't use deadly force. Or you disarm from deadly force and you just have them only have the tasers, only have the bear, uh, bear spray, uh, the chemical weapons, and other things. So here is a story from New Jersey. Newark. Newark police. They say that no officer has filed a single shot in 2020 thanks to their de-escalation program. Filed at the very end of last year. Newark police and city officials say a de-escalation training program is working, especially in a year faced with challenges. Police safety director... So instead of like police chief, they have a public safety director, which is also kind of the kind of reform that many cities like mine are uh, gunning for, gunning for, uh, pushing for, uh, to have a public safety administration instead of just having the police and the fire department, but to have a, a citizen-focused uh, manager of these entities. Thus, we can actually have citizen accountability of the police, because the mayor sure isn't doing that. Six of their 1,100 officers lost their lives to COVID, with dozens more officers sick after being exposed on the job. 2020 was the roughest year in his 34-year career in law enforcement. So yeah, okay, so they have 1,100 officers, six died of COVID. They also faced major challenges during the summer's anti-police brutality protests. <laughs> Who didn't? Through it all, Ambrosi says not one officer in the city fired his or her weapon while on duty in 2020. It was the unknown. It was the unknown that you didn't know with this disease that you were coming here every day and these police officers and firefighters going out there, and we didn't know. For Newark Police, it was a year of COVID fears, obstacles, and losses. We lost six police officers, and going to six funerals, it all wears on you. I can attest that my job of uh, housing um, ex-homeless housing uh, block. Uh, we also had a number of deaths that weren't from COVID, but related to the stress, maybe. There were also the major tension on the streets of the city following the death of George Floyd. We had protests, and they tried to take over one of our precincts, Rosie says. 2020 was tough for the Newark Police Department, but despite all that, top brass report an impressive statistic to round out 2020. Uh, not one police officer has fired a weapon in 2020. He credits the de-escalation program implemented in Newark two years ago. These things, it takes time for it to work, and I think it worked. Overall crime has been down 6% this year. The city saw, Newark City of Newark, 51 homicides, which was the same as 2019. Non-fatal shootings were up in the city. Uh, 61 of them had multiple victims. But more guns were taken off the streets. So, police officers recovered uh, about 500 illegal firearms. Again, whatever. Uh, a 7% increase over last year when officers took uh, 500. Okay. I'm proud of the men and women in Newark Police because this is, this is written from the police perspective here. So they're basically touting that they, they, they didn't actually shoot anybody or they didn't fire at anyone. 
have a cookie. <laughs> but that's success, right, in, in some imaginations. Success is just not having the police kill anyone. Whether or not they're still discriminating or we still live in a racist and violent society. Uh, yeah. Because that's, that's one of those bigger issues of looking at systemic problems that aren't individual. You know, to really address crime and violence. And I'm not saying that these are political issues that need to be dealt with with economics and politics, not simply enforcement and culture. Because enforcement is just keeping things going. So last year, police fired five shots. That's in 2019. But there was no details on whether that was at one incident or multiple incidents. Rosie says the true test of that training was on May 30th during a Black Lives Matter protest in which 1,700 people swarmed a precinct in an attempt to take it over. Not one shot was fired during the incident and nobody was severely injured. Makes me wonder why they didn't actually take the precinct. Maybe they were using everything else but guns, you know? Tear gas, pepper spray, batons. Yeah, that, that's the kind of spin that, um, what is it, uh, News 12 of Newark, New Jersey is putting on it. So here is a similar, um, but it's not disarm. I mean, it is disarmed police. It's a cri- uh, the crisis team is the other side of police reform to create a crisis that is still under the realm of public safety, but not the police any longer. And that's kind of what it means to abolish the police, to replace it with crisis teams and different types of responses that don't just fall under, we're enforcing the law and we're going to be armed while doing it. So this is from the, um, this was just linked, uh, you know, from the Facebook, from some Facebook feed randomly. It's from the Optimist Daily. I have visited them, God, it feels like a lifetime ago that I kind of bookmarked this website, the Optimist Daily, you know, giving you positive news every day. So, so it's just, just for those, like, I, I just, I hate saying, I, I hate seeing bad news all the time. Uh, I want to see good news. Well, they kind of do that. And then, and the, but it helps to be able to just oppose any positive or optimistic news versus the, maybe the, some of the more bad, uh, negative realities that still exist. Denver's unarmed 9-11-911 response team arrested no one in its first six months. The waves of protest of 2020 against systemic racism and police brutality lead to calls for cities to change their policing systems, right? Systemic change means you change the system, not just the individuals, Uh, which is why it does seem like a kind of contradiction when uh, certain activists are just focused on, like, fire this cop or fire that cop. Uh, when really it's like, no, no, this this should be about the reform and then whether or not these problematic, these asshole officers leave or they, they continue is, is then um, a shakeout can occur later. Or it just be natural. And it doesn't, you don't have to force the issue of, like, you got to fire them or else. Beyond just discriminatory policing, a big part of the problem was that police officers were being called on to respond to non-criminal 911 calls, something that they are simply not trained to do and which often lead to unnecessary violent responses. You know, shooting people. Last September, we wrote about a fantastic policing alternative set up in Denver called STAR, which stands for Support Team Assistance Response. Kind of feel like I've covered this on the show before. 
but I think this is a different article because it's like a year later. The STAR program began, or maybe it was something in Portland. It was Portland's version of this. Uh, the STAR program began in June 1st with a team of non-armed social workers serving non-dangerous citizens in need, which helped free up police to respond to other incidents, right? So this is one of the things that police reform or police abolition is calling for. Let's put out social workers instead of armed guards to solve social problems. The right or moderates will respond, oh, no, they'll be in danger. You can't just send people out to do that kind of work. Well, here's some positive example of where nothing went wrong. In fact, it was really good. Recently, new progress report came out from the STAR team detailing their first six months of being active. The report showed that they responded to 750 incidents, with not a single one of them requiring police or leading the arrest or jail time. STAR is reported to handle close to six incidents a day, between the hours of 10 and 6, during the day, Monday through Friday in high-demand neighborhoods, although the team does not yet have enough people or vans to respond to every incident. The promising early results suggest STAR could be expanded to help police deal with more nonviolent incidents. On you fund that, Biden. According to Chief Police Paul Heitzen, the goal now is to fill out the alternative program so that every neighborhood can use its services at all hours instead of just the weekdays during normal business hours because that's the only time people have nervous breakdowns, right? Doing so would cost nearly $3 million, but Payson says it should be possible to make it happen by the end of the year through a grant from Denver's sales tax-funded mental health fund. Is that from Pot? Don't know. Doesn't say. I think it shows how much officers are buying into this, realizing that these individuals need a focus level of care. Person Matthew Lund, who authored the report. For Pison, transferring low-level calls to civilian teams is not about reallocating money, but rather about solving two problems at once, getting homeless residents the help they need while letting police focus on other things. Sure. Um, you know, investigating crime. And violence. I want the police department to focus on police issues. Okay, we have more than enough work with regards to violent crime, property, and traffic safety. And if something like STAR or any other support system, so yeah, yeah, it doesn't integrate with all the other things I've been talking about. And with that, the hour is at an end. I will play some music and come back, rest my voice. Uh, I am Dan Platt. You've been listening to the Three Left Show, leftist readings and musings and other topics. I have social media. I have been posting clips on YouTube. That's Three Left Show. From uh, Twitch streams I do, which are not very often, but you know, there's enough clips there. There's at least a dozen or so now. We go up to 20 uh, in a matter of days. And I'll also be focusing on actually when I edit this episode, I'll be clipping uh, sections out and attempting to post them in little 10-minute, 20-minute clips like all those other streamers and podcasters do. Or they usually have someone else do it for them. So if you'd like to help with that, I could train you, uh, please, more the merrier. Um, many hands make light work. Uh, as such, here at Community Radio, WCAALP. The Voice. Um, what else? Uh, this show is podcasted, so you can get on any podcasting app. And if you'd like to donate to me personally uh, to help support this, not just make it a hobby form right now, uh, so I can actually devote more time and energy to making the show as good as possible and as uh, diverse in its in its ways that it gets out there. Donate to Libra Pay. That's kind of Patreon. I also have the Patreon page or Libra Pay. That's three left show.
Welcome back to the Three Left Show. I'm your host, Dan Platt. So when I last left off, I was uh, talking about the crisis teams of Denver and how successful they were being. Uh, going from a uh, trial uh, just during business hours to something that will actually get the proper funding to be accessible all hours of the day and all over the city of Denver. But here's the um, oh, and here's something else that's actually sort of positive, but also more of a hollow victory of sorts when it comes to homelessness. Um, comment of the day, reader: The greatest measure of a city is how it treats its lowest citizens. Written, uh, filed by a Patricia Calhoun, April of this year, uh, the West World paper, which is also Denver. And this is about homeless encampments, which I could probably go into. Especially in Western cities, it seems like the there the, the, you know rising homelessness, rising encampments. It's only going to increase actually because once the eviction memorandum is still in effect, but not for long, can it still be extended? Should I mean really, as speaking as a socialist, it should just be extended uh, infinitely and make a new set of law as far as. What is the you know responsibilities of renters, responsibility of landlords? Of course, we want to abolish them as socialists. We want more community ownership. We want more home, you know, even individual home ownership. This is something that should be taken as a given. People kind of need to rent and move around, as it's said, mostly because the jobs keep moving around. If we had local economies that actually had some type of permanence, we could have more permanent housing or permanent types of housing permanent communities maybe break that cycle of alienation a little bit the six-month leases for denver's first two safe camping sites are about to expire but the concept is not going away so the concept i guess is that denver has designated certain areas as being places you can camp we can make squatter cities uh, or you know bidenvilles you know <laughs> homeless encampments Plans are in the works to open a new site in Park Hill in June. Quoting, it really is an extension of what we think to love our neighbors and love all our neighbors, especially our most vulnerable ones. And if we have the ability to help, we should step up and do so. Speaking as Nathan Adams, lead pastor at Park Hill Methodist Church, who shares a space with Temple Micah. Meanwhile, neighborhood groups are urging Mayor Michael Hancock and Denver City Council to expand the program further. The two existing safe outdoor space sites have had some remarkable success in their short tenure, and it is time to scale them to provide temporary yet sustained support to the most vulnerable. You know, instead of criminalizing being homeless and camping, you actually provide a place, and then all of these negative externalities of basically doing something illegally when you absolutely have to, instead of criminalizing it, you make it something more official, something that can be actually governed, um, and there can actually be a, whether you think of it as a rule of law or community decency, people become a little less jerks. Uh, Park Hill Church will host two public hearings on the safe space, safe camping site in May. And I assume what makes it safe is that there's porta potties, maybe there's a self injection room, maybe some kind of, maybe there's health care available. And it's also just where, you know, social work can happen. Uh, community work can happen instead of it being spread out and you don't know where everyone is are they squatting here and they in a trailer by the river but readers are already weighing in with comments on the westward facebook post 
of our most recent safe camping site story. Here are some of them. The greatest measure of a city is how they treat their lowest, quote-unquote, lowest citizens. Social responsibility, the concept that will replace qualified immunity, will hold city council members and mayors accountable too. Flies John. I like to think the greatest measure of a community is what we can do to protect our children. Currently, we are prioritizing drug addict criminals over innocent children. How many more needles have to be found in playgrounds before we stand up for our children? How many more blocks have to be taken over by these garbage-filled camps before we take our streets back? Well, maybe the camps need garbage collection. Cause, yeah. Or maybe there needs to be a safe ejection site so that needles actually go somewhere. You know, if you provide safe ejection sites, which I'll have to go into on a show and, and just a simple article explaining them further, they are the solution to these, like, oh, needles are being left everywhere. Yeah, because there's nowhere for them to go. There's nowhere to shoot up safely, to ingest drugs, which if one is addicted to, you absolutely need it to live. So if you want to take something for granted, take for granted that when someone's addicted to drugs, they need drugs. So you should work with that assumption instead of trying to work against it and force some behavior on someone who's at literally rock bottom. Because quite frankly, uh, this is a moral assumption that the drug addict is not innocent, that they are guilty of the, that they're criminals just by existing because they took the illegal drug in the first place. There's all kinds of situations that lead into uh, become, being an addict. And it's not just weakness of character. It's weakness of its class that factors in. The greatest measure of a city is how it treats its citizens who contribute something, not the ones who contribute nothing. Well, I've, I've worked and met uh, homeless people. They, don't, they certainly do contribute all kinds of things. For one thing, something I point out as a mayoral candidate was that when it comes to collecting litter and cans and other trash, they're doing that labor. They spend, some of them spend all day collecting cans to reimburse themselves, to get the $10 from the bags and bags of filthy, stinky cans. Listen, the homeless situation is insurmountable. This article is about a solution, one solution. We need to pitch in where, where there is a need. I live here. It breaks my heart. Everyone in these camps was once someone's baby. The whole humanistic impulse. Great idea, sure better than some of the camps I've seen in Denver. Maybe the police won't raid the mentally ill people's homes and throw away their blankets if they live here. Ever use a porta potty when it's sub-zero? This isn't exactly the Hilton. Maybe these types of camps can help the homeless transition back to real homes and any needed treatment, because they certainly will need some kind of treatment. Just build another shelter, Denver. This is permanent. Stop acting like a baby and set up a solution. Oh, no. In this place, there's a vacant lot where there will be a building. And this is from James. Uh, the comment is, they will all be gone by the All-Star game. And their letter to the Denver officials, me meaning like they're tolerated until business has to be done, and then they'll be swept away and um, made invisible. Maybe they'll just be killed. Well, they'll be killed in an indirect way. In their letter to Denver officials, the neighborhood group suggests setting up a safe camping site in all city council districts, not just Park Hill. What do you think of that idea, and what do you think the city will do regarding unofficial encampments this summer? Because this goes to 
One of the responses to Occupy, the movement, which included camping in parks deliberately as a form of protest, was that many cities, Denver probably included, now pass laws making it a crime to camp in public parks, whether it's free speech or not, I suppose. And that meant Occupy's we needed to change tactics, and we kind of didn't. Uh, we we just kind of had to settle into a nonprofit mode of like, I guess we have to rent a space now, and then, and then operate by the rules of capitalism, which is exactly all the whole point of using common space to protest in, and just wait for it. Where like these these camps are hotbeds of degeneracy and uh, extremism. It's class classic. So now towards the more um, sensational but uh, sensational type of activism, but also the more hardcore direct action kind, where you just you're not just waiting for the moralistic the, the churches to do the right thing or, or other institutions and to provide at the very least a place to camp, right? Let alone whether it's shelter or a bathroom. I guess yeah, when they have porta potties. Because that was one of the uh, complaints about occupying campus is like we didn't have bathrooms, and you know oh they're pissing in bottles and stuff, unsanitary stuff of course, but uh, you didn't allow us the permit to set up a porta potty. You know, uh, Occupy Wall Street we set up porta potties. They were in a rented or gifted uh, loading bay, but it was five blocks away. So if you wanted to use the official Occupy bathroom, you had to walk quite a while. And in fact, it was made even longer by the fact that there was all the checkpoints and stuff around Wall Street that made it like you had to double back around. Uh, you know, because if you know downtown Manhattan, it, it's quite a maze. It was basically about a uh, team of activists and anarchist types. Um, they were basically squatting homeless teens in a motel. And the motel owner wanted them out and is trying to bring in the, the law. Uh, sheriffs and they're basically like we're housing teenagers homeless teenagers uh you're a monster this is this is what capitalism does to people it forces this kind of immorality uh so i i gave you a um a little taste of that with the synopsis a group of activists homeless motel owner okay that's what the story was about Next, we go to a more sensational take from, but a serious issue nonetheless. From It's Going Down, these are the kind of insurrectionary kind of act, um, anarchists, filed uh, this year, just, just this, this week, in fact. It is titled, The Culture of Vehicle Attacks on the Murder of Nian Marie Erickson. So this is more tied to when I was talking about traffic, speeding, infrastructure changes, cultural change, not just police enforcement. This isn't a policing issue. Speeding is a infrastructure issue. It is a car dependency issue. And, you know, culture of attacking people with cars, which is, you know, very right wing. It's very it's very much on the Trump side of things. Um, but with people reacting. So there's a picture here. So one is uh, you know, white supremacists are saying race mixing with the sign, race mixing is communism. And to the left is a modern picture of someone I assume in Halloween with a Trump bumper sticker. Not just a bumper sticker, it's like their license plate is Trump, uh, Trump sign. And they have basically a Halloween dummy splayed out on their car with fake blood with a big Antifa on it. Kind of a threat. Or a bad taste joke, whatever. 
So this is a joint statement from Crime Think, and it's going down on the recent murder of Dion Marie Erickson and its wider implications and context. This is, uh, so we'll go into it. On June 13th, a driver attacked a demonstration in Minneapolis, killing Dion Marie Erickson. This is the result of years of right-wing efforts to normalize and even legalize, because in red states, there are efforts to legalize attacking people with a vehicle, a vehicle attacks. Now the corporate media has ceased to prioritize covering them, paving the way for more killings. In dialogue with our comrades that it's going down and on the ground in Minneapolis, we have prepared the following reflections on the implications of this. This is where this show takes a turn into more of the uh, cars are bad, anti-car sentiments. Cars should be the exceptions in our cities and, uh, and culture. Shortly before midnight on June 13th, while demonstrators gathered at Lake City and Garrett Avenues to protest the murder of Winston Smith by sheriff's deputies and U.S. Marshals, a man named Nichols Cross drove his SUV into a crowd at high speed, killing Dion Marie Erickson, one black anti-fascist militant who was on the ground at the time of the attack reports that it was clear to those present that it was an intentional attack. You heard his engine from three blocks away, they say. According to Yukon Ryan, which is the kind of ninja journalist that videotape uh, on the ground protest. Dion Erickson's car was parked on the side of the street in a way that would protect the people who were gathering. So this is actually the defensive measure that protesters now use, right? So we're not just waiting to get hit. We actually have allies park their cars intentionally to block streets. So it's not just people ready to get run over. Uh, Dion Air or passive resistance, and it's our salt march, you know, it's our getting hosed down. Uh, but it's not the cops doing it. Although sometimes in you know, June of last year, it was the cops doing it. But you have these vigilantes. Darian Erickson's car was parked on the side of the street in a way that would protect the people who were gathering. She was sitting down on the sidewalk about 15 feet from her car moments before the perpetrator smashed directly against it at a very high speed. Witnesses say she was then hit by her car and sent flying. Street medics on the scene resuscitated her, but she later died at a hospital. John Marie Erickson had two daughters. She worked in a program manager as a program manager at the Center for Disabled Adults. Today would have been her 32nd birthday. She's my age. She gave her life to protect those who protest police murder. Demonstrators detained the driver, Nicholas Krauss. Eyewitnesses dispute police allegations that he was pulled from his car. Reportedly, police did not respond until after the attack, of course, sending riot police to threaten the crowd before an ambulance could arrive. Under the circumstances, the demonstrator's response was measured, to say the least. Uh, quoting a tweet, Ayasha uh, Chuhyagi of War 10, uh, who's running for office, I guess. Anti-protester rhetoric emboldened someone to use their car to murder Dion Marie in Uptown last night. Diona spent the last moments of her life holding space to demand justice for Winston Smith. She knew the importance of solidarity and community. May she rest in power. Now let's put this attack in context. Fox News and Daily Caller circulated a video encouraging their viewers to carry out villager attacks against protesters months ahead of the fascist Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, at which a self-identified neo-Nazi did exactly that, killing Heather Heyer and injuring 35. Afterwards, leaked chats showed other neo-Nazis also planning to use vehicles to attack protesters. In the summer of 2020, vehicle attacks surged in response to protests against the police murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, 
and Noir. Over a dozen people were killed in these and other attacks, attacks on the movement. After Heather Heyer was murdered, another tweet. After she was murdered, Fox rushed to take down articles encouraging murder of protesters with cars. Currently, the GOP is pushing anti-protest bills, making it legal to run over protesters. Vehicle homicide is the helicopter meme Fox News plus the GOP brought to life. Now, the helicopter meme, if you're unaware, is that the fascist or neoliberal dictator of Chile, Adeno Pinochet, put his political opponents, leftists, uh, up for a helicopter ride and pushed them out. And that was his favored or wacky way of executing people. And there were many t-shirts and part of right-wing culture to make the helicopter meme, which is to make fun of this fact and say, yes, we're going to push these Antifa super soldiers, these Antifa thugs out of helicopters or run them over for cars. Today, legislators around the U.S. are taking steps to criminalize protest activity, including wide range of anti-protest bills. For most among them, in Oklahoma and Florida lawmakers have passed laws guaranteeing silver and criminal immunity to drivers who hit demonstrators with vehicles, effectively granting vigilantes the right to crash cars into demonstrations. At the same time, Florida has introduced penalties of up to 15 years imprisonment for blocking traffic. Not hitting pedestrians. Not hitting those expressing free speech. But for blocking the traffic. Thus is how important traffic and cars are. People have to get where they're going. People have to get where they're going. The message is clear enough. In short, lawmakers and police seek to crack down on pedestrian, pedestrians acting collectively to oppose state violence, while extending additional privileges to drivers who act individually to support state violence via their own attacks. The official institutions of the state have failed to leverage enough violence to suppress movements against them, uh, meaning BLM and whatever. They're practically uh, very popular, enough that, you know, mayors paint streets, Black Lives Matter and whatnot. But leveraging uh, outsider violence, vigilante violence, has been a long-standing counterinsurgency strategy reflective of the colonial heritage of the U.S. On a fundamental level, the form of subjectivity that these lawmakers are promoting is what we might call a motorist one. It's, it's consumerist. It's individual-focused, invested in the smooth functioning of the existing order and regarding all other possibilities as a threat. Structurally speaking, for the motorist, all other human beings traffic as well as pedestrians, are obstacles. And the only imaginable journey are dictated by the routes established by the state and the economy. The motorist wants to see the laws enforced on others, on the premise that it will reduce the ways that others might inconvenience them. But he doesn't want the laws enforced on himself. This is the underlying ugly white you know, privilege talked about in the previous articles about traffic enforcement. Conceiving of our society as an entirely mapped world, the way that Google Maps does, in which all means of locomotion, all forms of agency, are individualized according to financial means, the motorist cannot imagine why people would assemble, off-road or not, to challenge law enforcement itself. All streets are roads, and all roads are for driving, for getting from A to B. This is, this is mentioned by another Strong Towns or a similar type of article. There's the, um, the, differ the differentiation, the difference between a street and a road. A road is for driving on to get from A to B. A street, yeah, you can drive on it, but it's also a place. 
it is an urban place to exist, to play in the street, to do things, to set up stalls. And the thing is, most color culture and American design have made all streets roads for the most part, unless it is the only streets that can really exist as streets are those really narrow 20 feet wide streets um, where the lanes are nine feet. And some of them in Albany, because of the whiff of cars, they may have been two ways at one time and they're still designated as two way, but you can only fit one car at a time. They're all technically one lane bridges. So if you have like someone coming at you, you pretty much have to pull over or like stop and then maybe they can kind of wiggle around you. And that is safe. That encourages safe driving. And no one on that block is ever going to get hit by a car. As shocking as vehicle attacks are when they occur, and they're sensational, they're sensational events, they are an extension of the society in which they take place, like everything. They are antisocial, but they express and intensify the antisocial premises of our day-to-day relations. Motorist versus pedestrian is a classic class opposition in our society in which transportation and mobility are fundamentally racialized well as class-based people who are raised on advertisements protecting jeeps off-roading across the suspiciously vacant landscape of our frontier only to find themselves sitting in bumper-to-bumper traffic on the freeway for an hour every day look around for someone to blame as if by design blame those with even less power than themselves and thus road rage occurs in this context the chant whose streets are streets asserts another form of life another way of relating to each other conceiving of what our lives could be. Rather than framing vehicle attacks as operations from an otherwise peaceful social order to be addressed, by example, by more policing, we have to understand them as one of the more ugliest manifestations of our society. That's anti-human, fundamentally racist. I wasn't kidding about how sensational the language of it's going down is, but (laughs) it's going down, baby! Honoring those whose lives have been taken by police and pro-police vigilantes is the first step towards this. And it is important that people... So just recognizing that these murders are taking place. The internet, the information superhighway, tends to reinforce the motorist mentality of abstract competition and hostility. One of the most basic steps we can take towards creating a new social fabric, one on egalitarian terms, is to encounter each other in person in ways that affirm special places that a street is a place and not just a means of conveyance. This gives us more perspective on the ongoing efforts of city officials to evict the autonomous zone at the site of George Floyd was murdered in order to open it up for free passage of traffic. Rhetoric about culture war is usually used to invoke a conflict between those on the, or the fringes of the left and right. But here we see centrist officials forcibly imposing a particular model for what our lives, our cities should be like. Right, that our cities are for cars, not for political gathering, or for whatever is used in George Floyd Square, which is basically now a pedestrian space. But it's enforced by communities setting up barricades, which are constantly in a fight now. In the same way that um, the cash was, was that in Portland? Yeah. Um, but they're, they're, they're lasting a lot longer because, well, there's a lot more involved now. Uh, people involved as well and more at stake symbolically it's like it's it's car versus people and it's a similar dynamic as police versus people or the state the state state violence versus people right of a privileged individual 
driving their car over entire communities of people. Kids that get hit with cars, kids on their little bikes who get killed. They're memorials. Um, they don't get a statue in the city. It's up to people to put out little candles and have a little memorial that's there forever. Vase of flowers. Where's their monument? And it's not just pedestrians. It's also like any kind of supremacy. It, it oppresses the people who supposedly benefit from it. 40,000 people die in car accidents, car crashes. That's that's all that's all races and, and classes, not not the poorest who don't can't own a car or or must use public transport. So, but here's the dynamic where, like you know, when when you're on the far left, like me, you kind of see everyone to your right as kind of being a mishmash of the same. You know why this whole like you know Biden and Trump, they're they're not really that different as far as where we're standing. Here's an example of that. Far-right murderers and their centrist beneficiaries. Nicholas Cross, a man with a history of domestic violence and abuse, is representative of the sort of dysfunctional, alienated men that far-right provocateurs aim to weaponize to carry out these uh, psychotic attacks on social movements. Meaning that they're just randomly punched, you know. Um, this is effectively a watered-down version of the same strategy that ISIS has used in the Mideast in territories it does not control, taking advantage of the desperate, the prejudiced, mental health issues of an entitled but disenfranchised population. You know, because we're all victims of capitalism at the end of the day. And that's why building class movement will go a lot longer and it's more powerful because it doesn't divide along these white, black, and other, other lines. It can kind of make them a little less alienated from, from the people because they hate themselves as much as anyone else. Their goal is to raise the risk of public organizing to such an extent that it becomes hard for movements to maintain momentum in order to support state repression while opening up space for fascist groups to recruit and mobilize. A similar line of thinking when it comes to Antifa fascist punching. But see, we're not running them over with cars. <laughs> we're just kind of throwing hands. But we're all we, but let's say Antifa throwing hands. Distance myself from them because I haven't personally done it. So in Turkey, this approach helped the despotic government of Erdogan to crush what had become powerful social movements. The ultimate beneficiaries of this were not just far-right politicians, but also centrist capitalists, who do not wish to see fundamental changes that could threaten their power. Now, let's stay in the middle. Let's stay in the middle. It's safe in the middle. Vigilante attacks are also advantages for the city officials who would like to present themselves as neutral, while suppressing the protest movements against the murders of the police that they oversee regularly, carry out. Vigilante attacks enable these officials to change the subject from the violence of institutions that they represent back to a question of how to maintain order. If the goal of those who seek to encourage vigilante attacks is to discourage movements based in direct action, this dovetails with the goals of a city official who seeks to use the nonprofit complex to buy off a layer of activists to impose and undermine effective strategies from within the movement. In that regard, one of the most important ways to prevent the attackers from achieving their goals is to preserve the horizontal grassroots structure of a movement against police while continuing to emphasize the systemic forms of white or capitalist uh, supremacy. 
Some of these people um, with the megaphones. I guess, uh, so here's a quote from an anonymous black Antifa. Some of these people with the megaphones. I guess their role is to get people riled up and get them in a space and march them around and educate them and tell them what their next next plans are and who they're backing politics-wise and things like that. Community, organic, no microphones, no megaphones, like right now. It's about 50 people. But 50 people got Lake and Hempin shut down right now. You know what I'm saying? We're moving and grooving right now, as opposed to two or 300 people holding signs, marching around, and then feeling accomplished, patting themselves on the back, and then leaving. It ain't nothing get shut down, really. Police don't even monitor the marches no more. No change will come from that. So, basically, uh... Uh, just comparing direct action of blocking traffic uh, versus the formal, legal, permitted uh, marches done by nonprofits. Or but who's paying attention? In 2021, many liberals and progressives have left the streets relying on the Biden administration to roll back the policies of the Trump one. Consequently, the murder of Dewona Marie Erickson has attracted considerably less attention than it might have just last year. This withdrawal from social struggles creates the conditions for more attacks like this to take place. This reminds us of the situation before the murder of Heather Heyer made world news, when the far right carried out a series of murders around the United States without drawing any attention from corporate media. Corporate media outlets were only focused to cover the events in Charlottesville because it was not possible to sweep under the rug the fact that a thousand fascists had gathered in one place and killed a white woman. Because the event looks took news editors, though not anti-fascists, by surprise. They were not prepared to spin the story according to the preferences of their corporate backers. So for a week, fairly honest coverage of the threat represented by the far right suddenly appeared in a variety of outlets. Subsequently, although this coverage was tempered by efforts to demonize Antifa, anti-fascist, centrist media outlets continued to report on far right attacks in order to associate them with the agenda of Donald Trump. Even though one could say it's all completely It's not separated so much as Trump is a non-factor, whether he's there or not. You know, just because he's not president anymore doesn't mean there isn't a far-right movement that's ready to drive people over. Or that there are um, right-wing governments, state governments, that are criminalizing being homeless, criminalizing existing in various ways, or being political and organizing in public. So Antifa slogans, we keep us safe, we protect us. These slogans spread far and wide in the course of the movements that burst into the world stage in Ferguson because it has become eminently apparent that no one is going to protect, else is going to protect us. And that's why for the disenfranchised, it's not enough to just say, look, we just want the police to keep us safe. But safe, who's safe, Right abstract arguments about you know safety and freedom are universal it seems as if you know when you decide that we're going to choose safety over freedom that everyone is going to be safe but that's absolutely not the case somebody is going to get killed for quote unquote someone else's safety so why not choose freedom and that way we can self-organize or organize to keep ourselves safe from threats that, when properly thought about, don't really exist. You know, the threat of needles in playgrounds doesn't exist if you actually provide the infrastructure for drug treatment by decriminalizing it. 
You criminalize the addicts and they can actually get treatment and maybe not be addicts anymore. Never fully recovered, but in recovery. In the same way that someone with diabetes can manage their condition so that they do not have blood sugar shock. So there's more, more to read, but otherwise I'm going to move on to the last bit. The post on this said it was longer, so definitely not going to get to all of it. I'll, I'll do the um, first few paragraphs, and then with five minutes left, the last few paragraphs. So this one, this one, this is also from Vice Motherboard. So I'm bookmarking the entire show with uh, the same source, Aaron Golding. But um, but this is along the same tack with the. So we've covered the. Well, let's see if I can get over. Uh, let's see if I can work through everything I've covered. Um, the driving, the systemic issues with traffic enforcement, and you know, and then traffic violence, using cars as a weapon against political movements. This goes, so th- this article speaks to even uh, even more fundamental problem when it comes to cars and being safe. So, so let's say the goal is safety over freedom. Okay, so let's restrict the freedom of cars, of, of owning cars, of driving cars. I don't know if that's the tack this article takes, but it's called abolish the driving test. Sounds crazy, but if you actually, similar to homework, if you actually look at the data concerning its effects, it's all negative. It doesn't help. It doesn't promote any safety or well-being. It's a waste. So, for almost a century, U.S. drivers have performed a ritual that supposedly serves as the linchpin for road safety efforts. You know, the education side. But we have no evidence it works, and a lot of evidence that it doesn't. So, let's start with a kind of anecdote. In, early two, in the early 2000s, he can't precisely remember, Steve Bozen was taking his driving tests in San Fran. He aced everything despite the city's notoriously tricky roads. He pulled the car back into the DMV parking slot, perpendicularly parked, and perhaps feeling the confidence boost from a job well done, decided to straighten the car a bit so it fit perfectly in the spot. In the process, he almost ran over a whole family. Quote, I hadn't even looked to see if there were people behind me, Bozen recalled. I felt pretty sick about the whole thing and frankly still do. Despite this, Bozen somehow still passed. After living abroad for many years, Bozen's license lapsed and he had to retake the test in Colorado. Complying with Colorado law, Bozen came to a stop at a light with sufficient distance from the car in front of him such that he could see the rear wheels, you know, general rule. But his examiner, who was a good deal shorter than him, couldn't see the wheels. Bozen failed his driving test because the examiner said he didn't stop with well enough a sp- space between them and the vehicle. I think that's why it's it's not usually based on sight, but how many car lengths are between you and the car. Oh, oh no, yeah, that's stopping. So, like, you, you're minimizing the space between cars. You know, it's about saving space to fit more cars on the road. Rather, are all the cars safe? Last year, in the early days of the pandemic, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp made national news when he decided to suspend driving tests, thus granting new licenses to people without having them take one. Many people thought this was deadly irresponsible. Surely many parents and safety experts thought this would result in more irresponsible driving and mass carnage, although the data shows that in, um, during the pandemic, there was a lot less driving happening and thus emptier roads and thus 
those on the roads felt more comfortable breaking more of the laws and driving recklessly, thus leading to more car deaths, which is a story I could have included, but just assume headline, driving goes down, but car deaths actually go up slightly. Rebecca West saw the news, too. She studies driving driver safety for Insurance Institute for Highway Safety. Ooh, so official. Uh, with particular focus on young drivers. But she had to admit to herself that she didn't know the impact this decision to suspend driving tests would have. Personally, I just want to mention my personal history. I did not get my driver's license until I was 22. So I was a fully formed adult human with a fully uh, formed brain before I started driving. And that was a more deliberate decision, as well as I went to school in Manhattan. I didn't have to drive. West decided to look at the existing research on the subject, and even when it comes to going from home to school, uh, Amtrak was there, as well as very cheap bus services. Uh, so West decided to look at the existing research on the subject, only to find that there wasn't much. To her surprise, there were no good studies on whether driving tests improve road safety. It seemed to her that, likely because of the expense and the difficulty involved in doing a good study, no one had bothered. Still, this struck West as a glaring omission. You know, why do we do anything if there's no evidence? If it's just kind of common sense wisdom, right? Because common sense wisdom, I mean, sometimes it's backed up by hundreds of years of some experience, but, I mean, data is kind of good, too. Most people understand, at least on a subconscious level, the driving test doesn't really accomplish these things. Nearly all of us have taken one and have also driven like idiots at one time or another. And we see people on the roads almost every day driving as if they had forgotten everything they were ever taught. Speeding in crowded pedestrian areas, <laughs> controlling the wheel with their knees while eating, looking down phones, so on. Nonetheless, as a society, we have internalized these assumptions about the merits of the driving test. But really, what this article is hinting at is the, the necessity of driving regardless of how bad everyone is at it. That you are controlling or in control of a two-ton machine, and you only need to basically train for uh, what was it, 40, 50 hours, and, and then take a what amounts to a very simple test. 86% of those surveyed considered the licensing test very important to ensure drivers behave safely. Bunch of sheeple, if you ask me. Okay, like Weist, I became interested in the question of whether road tests accomplish anything when I wrote the Georgia suspension of license tests more than a year ago. Since then, despite countless hours of research and interviews with automotive historians, I've come across precious little evidence. Uh, it is time to declare the century-long experiment a failure. Fixing the way we think about driving tests and abolishing them altogether is important. Just having fewer people die in U.S. roads it is emblematic of a larger American struggle to make our institutions fair. The implication of of earning a driver's license is that the license can be suspended or revoked for driving like a maniac. And indeed, they can be, including for dangerous behavior like drunk driving. But such cases are the exception, not the rule. One study looking at New Jersey licenses found that in 2018, 5.5% of all licenses were suspended, but a whopping 91% of those suspended were for non-driving related reasons, such as failure of paying a fine. Meaning they're like taking away privileges for the already underprivileged. You didn't have the money to pay the fine because they're in medical debt, you know? By and large, licenses are suspended as a punishment, not for driving poorly, but for being poor. 
It is an extension of national policy of criminalizing poverty, thus making this class, economic class, right? So it's, we're not even talking about uh, driving while black. But that's included too. By having a suspended license, it is harder for that person to get a hold of a job, and thus you can't any pay your fines. It's time to drop the pretense that driving tests and the associated bureaucracy that administers them has any societal value. Let's move forward to the end about what is kind of proposed. Yes, this is long and well documented. This is, this is a well-researched article. It's quite lengthy. A better system is likely one that embraces the lessons of the GDLs and genesis the idea of a one-size-fits-all test-approved competency. And instead demands, and this is across the board of all education, by the way, <laughs> and instead demands ongoing responsibility and care from drivers throughout their entire lives. Here I envision a system that more readily suspends licenses for increasing durations for repeated dangerous traffic violations like speeding and running red lights. And fines, if they continue to exist, because they really shouldn't at all, ought to be indexed to the driver's ability to pay, which is something done in Scandinavia and something that other reform advocates advocate for. But I am not naive about the prospects of that happening. Namely, they are zero. Even in New York City, one of the few places in the U.S. people can live productive lives without a license or a car, hold dangerous, holding dangerous drivers accountable uh, for their actions is a consotic quest. Meaning it's like weird. Whether they kill a pedestrian or a cyclist or simply drive irresponsibly as a matter of course, for example, program that would force people with 15 speed cameras or five red light tickets in the 12-month period, a tiny fraction of the population, considering the high bar for recklessness, merely to attend a driver safety training was barely passed. Defunded during COVID and is still a much weakened program from what it was initially proposed. So it barely passed, but even after it passed, thus it was underfunded. Eight states have outright banned red light and speed cameras, which would be critical for enforcement tools, going circling back around to the first article at the beginning of the show. The U.S. is locked in an unhealthy system where driving is both one of the leading causes of injury and death and also an economic and social necessity. Isn't that capitalism in a nutshell, people? Isn't that capitalism in a nutshell? Let's re I'm going to read that again. The U.S. is locked in an unhealthy system. Right? Are we talking about capital? Are we talking about our economy or driving? Are we talking about everything? It's an unhealthy system where it is both one of the leading causes of injury and death and also a social and economic necessity. So much. Our empire counts as that. Our wars count as that. Criminalizing poverty counts as that. They're, they're both causes of harm and immorality and human depredation, but they're also economically and socially necessary You know, to the current society, society we have. Thus, if we really want to solve these issues... Let's not solve them, address them. We gotta go for systemic change. We gotta go for social revolution. And there, and that with that note, time to end the show. So I'll once again go through my housekeeping. This show has covered issues from a point of view of socialism, anarchism, and ecology, because cars are damnably bad for the environment, whether they're electric or not. Throw it all together. So Libra Pay, Patreon, check it out. Three left show, support the show, uh, support me particularly, but also support this radio station. 
grandarts.org. There's the live stream, which you can always listen to, whether you have a radio or not. You shouldn't just listen to the show when you're in the car. That's very inefficient, especially since signal doesn't go that far, though there is a pending FCC rule change that might increase our wattage so we could actually cover the whole city from where we are. Wouldn't that be cool? Nearly doubling, if not over doubling, our uh, wattage and thus our uh, reach, um, by radio anyway. So, uh, socials. I'm on Macedon, Twitter, Facebook. I post the episodes. I also post other content, particularly on YouTube. Um, I'm definitely gearing up towards actually, if not doing Twitch streaming and making videos that way, I will take clips from the audio episodes and make clips and put them on YouTube for your listening pleasure so you don't have to listen to or get um, or deal with a two-hour file. Uh, so with that, I realize I don't have to keep talking. I can just play myself out.